0: We've been talking about climate change in February as part of our Psychology Month series. What are some of the ways we could think about the crisis differently? How can we ensure that the science is conducted, communicated, and then followed? And how does human behavior fit into all of this? It has been, I will admit, a little gloomy, a little bleak, and on occasion, I have found discussing this global catastrophe a little depressing. So this week, let's do something a little different. This week, let's get happy about the whole thing. My name is eric Bowman i'm the communications person at the canadian psychological association and this is mindful my guest this week is a returning champion to the mindful program a scientist at ubc who speaks about the connection between climate action sustainability and happiness she will be a featured speaker on this very subject at the cpa's annual convention this year in ottawa and has a really interesting TED Talk, which you can find in the show notes of today's episode. Now, let's get happier.
1: My name is Jiaying Zhao. Uh, You can call me Jay-Z. I'm an Associate Professor in Psychology and Sustainability at the University of British Columbia.
0: What does a Professor of Sustainability mean? What is, is, how is that part of the the job title? What does that mean exactly?
1: So, My title is behavioral sustainability. Now it's a new term invented to describe the intersection between psychology and environmental sustainability. So let me explain what that means. In my lab, we study human behavior change. So behavioral sustainability means using psychology to change human behavior toward sustainability. So that could be plastic waste reduction, climate mitigation, climate adaptation, biodiversity conservation. Uh, so those are those are the, the fields I've worked in. And I use psychology in the following sense. Um, I use the principles that govern human behavior to design interventions to change human behavior.
0: I read about one of these interventions and tell me if this was your lab or not. I think it was at your institution. People discovered that if you put photos of animals like polar bears on recycling bins, that people were more likely to use them and put more things in those recycling bins. Was that you guys?
1: That's, that is my study. That's my study uh, with my PhD student, Um, uh, I We actually did, uh, we didn't use polar bears. (laughs) although That would be fascinating. Uh, We used turtles and dolphins. Okay. And specifically, we posted images of turtles and dolphins trapped in plastic debris. So these kind of somewhat heart-wrenching photos or images of a turtle, you know, trapped in a plastic bag or a straw or a dolphin whose fin is, is trapped by a plastic piece of plastic bag. So those images, uh, when we post those images on the recycling stations or actually garbage stations in general, what we found was the amount of plastic waste r- was reduced. This is amount of plastic waste going into all streams. So recycling, uh, garbage, etc. So it seems like people are responsive to those images. And the principle here is trying to connect the our actions, which is throwing stuff away, to the downstream consequences of our actions. So now every time you throw away a plastic bag or a plastic bottle, this image is designed to show them, this is what's gonna happen to the marine animals if you do that. So there's some kind of a connection between the immediate action to the downstream consequences in the future. So this is what what we are trying to do. And we found it was effective it reduced plastic waste by about 20%.
0: That's remarkable. You, you said it reduces even the amount of waste that people put into the recycling. So does that mean that they yeah. see the image and then they're less likely to throw away their plastic water bottle or recycle Yeah. It or more likely so, to reuse it?
1: Well, so exactly. So there's there's just a reduction of consumption in general. So this is not to say that, you know, you should buy as much as you want and then recycle as much as you want. That doesn't turn out to be the most effective thing, what the best thing you can do for the environment. The best thing you can do is just don't buy single-use plastics. Use reusable things, reusable bags, bottles, etc. So cut out waste at the at the consumption. So before you you know stop people from buying these things. And that's that's what we actually discovered is people gradually switch to kind of reusable bottles, reusable bags as opposed to purchasing and throwing away single-use plastics.
0: I read recently, or I guess I, I saw... Uh, that a lot of people still think that uh, single-use plastics, uh, cups, for example, from Tim Hortons or from, you know, fast food chains where you get your coffee, they still think that those are recyclable and they still put them in there recycling because they seem like they're paper on the outside. Uh, but there is a plastic sheet in the middle of them that yeah. is what prevents the coffee from leaking out of your cup. It's not actually recyclable. So I think, you know, they were showing this to people so people were more convinced that they might want to bring their own reusable container when they... They go and get a coffee, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's an insidious effect of human behavior. This, this is the insidious phenomenon of human behavior. What I mean by that is there's a rebound effect. So what rebound effect is, once we know something is recyclable, then we use more of it. Right. So if I tell you the coffee cup is recyclable, the consumers think, oh, wow, well, I can just buy as much as I want because I'm going to recycle them. That's that's fine, Right. No, I mean, um, it's the same with pl- paper towels, right? As soon as we know paper towels can be re- recycled, then they use more of it. So that's actually counterproductive. And the rebound effect can actually offset the the benefits of recycling. It Same goes with electricity consumption. So this is kind of a, you know, to me, it's a, it's a troubling phenomenon of human behavior. And what we should be doing instead is just, I would say, just stop offering single-use items and really get and try to make those reusable items easier to access, more affordable. And the reusable should be the default.
0: And more convenient for people and to grab those reusable things. Now, when you hear people talking about greenwashing, companies will, you know, uh, present their product as eco-friendly in some way, and they'll put green packaging on it. And, you know, some of these claims are dubious, some of them are accurate, but is that one of the reasons companies do this? Because that does encourage people to use more of that product?
1: Yeah, that's like the biggest lie ever. Uh, right. uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think this is, we need to set standards and regulations to, to actually prevent greenwashing. That should not, that should be illegal in my opinion
0: right so a lot of your research i think focuses on happiness and the connection that you have between happiness and sustainable behaviors that a lot of sustainable behaviors that people can engage in are also likely to produce uh, happier results for them in their own lives things like going out and taking a walk in nature and that sort of thing i'm hoping you can expand a little bit more on that and and talk to me a little bit about what are some of those things uh, that people can just do in their regular lives that actually are helpful to them for both their mental health and for the world around them.
1: Yeah, so this is a, a approach that Liz Dunn Liz Dan and I have come up with in the last couple of years, where we call this happy climate approach, where we identify individual actions that not only reduce carbon emissions, but also increase happiness at the same time. So I give a TED talk on this last year. An example of this is biking. Biking reduces emissions from driving. And it's it's also a form of physical exercise. And it actually activates our endocannabinoid system so we feel happier, we feel more euphoric after biking. So that's a that's an action we're calling the sweet spot that boosts happiness and reduces emissions at the same time. And I think this kind of approach will we we'll do many things. There are many benefits to this approach. One, it can combat our climate anxiety, you know, eco-anxiety, that we feel doom and gloom, we feel hopeless about the future. Engaging in those happy climate actions can boost our mood and well-being, and it can get us up and going. And two is everybody wants to be happy. Like I don't know a single individual who, who says, I do not want to be happy. And you know, climate change is a polarizing topic, as you know, in Canada and U.S. It's a divisive topic in some communities. If we anchor climate action in happiness, then we have a better shot at getting more people on board. Because right. happiness is a universal human desire, right? So I think that's, a, that's probably the biggest benefit, in my opinion. We can get more people involved in the fight against climate change. In fact, I am even willing to say that if you do these happy climate actions, like you don't even have to care about climate change to do these right. things because these things are good for you anyway. Right. So it's almost like, you know, we can just just simply say this is good for your well-being and happiness and health. You should do it without even mentioning climate change. So I think that's the kind of, you know, the the persuasion we need to get more people on board.
0: At the same time, though, and the way that I'm thinking about this, you know, you mentioned that people have anxiety about this, that people have real problems with the doom and gloom and and, and being frightened about this and that this is one way to sort of alleviate that. OK, here's a small step that you can take. It's also going to make you feel happy and maybe it will alleviate mm-hmm. some of those symptoms of, of you know, the oppressive uh, nature of thinking about this all the time. Right. Yeah. but at the same time and and i'm having a hard time wrapping my head around this which is that you know i can do all kinds of things and i do all kinds of things that i you know i try to conserve water and i try to reuse everything and i try to have uh, as much reusable stuff in my house as i can and minimize my garbage and so on but i'm not making a dent in the overall problem mm-hmm. that we're facing and i might be able to tell a friend, like, listen, these are the things that I'm doing. And maybe that friend gets convinced as well. And maybe they tell another friend, but they're going to have to tell several million of their friends for us to truly make a dent in this overall problem. So I'm guessing my question really is one of scale. Each of us individually can do these things. And yes, they're certainly helpful, but we need an awful lot of us to be doing these things. And then we need some governmental policy on top of that, to encourage everybody to do these things and also to reduce the overall amount of emissions that we're putting out as a country, right? So, and I'm just wondering how you think about that. Like, you know, how does that play into the research that you do and then the advice that you give and the, you know, results that you have? Is it is it scalable on that level?
1: Yeah, that's a great point. So we need both system change and individual change. We need both. It's not either or. <laughs>
0: right
1: you know the happy climate action the happy climate policy is a thing you know it's something that we need to aim for so before i talked about actions individual actions but there are happy climate policies that governments can enact so you know install more bike lanes in, in um incentivize car share carpooling services those are the the policies that the governments can put in place that enable people to do more of those happy climate actions. Right. Um, so I think I've been, you know, I'm, I've am i been talking to governments about that. When you set up a policy, please consider the well-being aspect of that. Right. I mean, part of the issue with carbon taxes, people think they're going to pay more. Now things are going to get more expensive. And that's not great for our happiness. You know? right. <laughs> um, So how can we, you know, engineer carbon tax policies to boost human happiness as opposed to, you know, increase prices and actually be a pain for everybody? And I think what what Canada is doing is actually, what BC is doing is amazing in in that regard. You know, carbon tax is now being redistributed back to people as as, as tax returns. So at least in BC, I think, well, in in several provinces in, in, in Canada, you actually get more money back than you pay in carbon tax yes. because of the, the dividend that you get back. So it's a net positive a policy, but just most people don't know about that. And most I, people I think, yeah.
0: don't know I think that a, you
1: actually get more money back. From that carbon is tax a big
0: issue, right? Because as a communications person, I think this all comes down to the verbiage, the words that people use, and they chose to call this a tax And they called it a carbon tax. And I think that what you're describing is true, by and large, across Canada, most people do get more back than they're actually spending. Considerably more people get more back than they're spending in a carbon tax, but it's called a tax. And I now know that I'm paying a tax and whatever my dividend I get back, well, that's what the government owes me. And it seems like two very separate things, I think, to a lot of people, right? Yeah.
1: It should be called carbon dividend. I feel like it's just the framing, like the communication is just not there. It's such a lost opportunity, in my opinion. I mean, it's actually a good thing, but most people don't know about it.
0: Right. Right. And, and I I think that that sort of thing does engender this backlash, right? I mean, you mentioned that climate change is a polarizing subject. Well, I'm not, I still can't really wrap my head around how, how we got to a point where that was polarizing. It's, very clearly a thing that's happening right but the messaging that people are able to do around it where they can say oh look they want to charge you with tax it's a tax and you know i think that we sort of missed the boat on that messaging from from the get-go you know decades ago when we really started yep. to talk about this stuff right
1: yeah i mean so in part i mean it wasn't polarizing back in the 80s uh the conservative party was actually supportive of of of, of climate action
0: yeah. And I think the 80s is a pretty good decade to sort of represent some of those things that, that we did at that time that were successful. Acid rain was going to be a huge problem. Well, we went ahead and put measures in place to prevent that from becoming a bigger problem. There was going to be a big hole in the ozone layer. Well, we banned chlorophyll carbons and we you know made sure that the things that were causing that hole weren't going to make it worse. We solved some of those immediate problems back at at that mm-hmm. time and it seems like a much steeper hill to climb now and the way i think the way i think about it too and tell me if this makes sense to you i do some climate actions in my own life i you know bike to the grocery store i have reusable straws that i use i have you know coffee cups that i take to my coffee shop and and reuse And then I feel like those are pretty easy things to do. They make me happy. They're good. And then if the government were to come along and say, well, now that's the default. You have to take a reusable cup to your coffee shop or or whatever it might be. I'd be much more inclined to say, well, that's cool with me. I'm already doing it. Right. So maybe maybe it's a sort of Bottom up process where the more mm-hmm. we all buy into this already, the easier it then becomes to create policies around that.
1: I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, we can't wait for governments to change policies. I mean, that's that's just not going to work. Um, we need both bottom up and top down approaches. Bottom up, I think we consumers with the public can actually drive the market. Right? I mean, look at the plastic policies, like the 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 bans on single use plastic items in Vancouver in BC and in Canada wide nationwide, I think there's a plastic ban. I think it's coming to effect now. Yeah. So I think that this this requires consumer buy-in and a lot of those changes are actually demanded by the consumers or the market. Right. Yeah. I, I just think that we need to voice our concerns. And and another another happy climate action is, you know, literally participating in climate rallies, protests. Joining organizations that are working on the issues that you care about, and the reason it's happy is because you're working with people. You're with your friends. It's a social movement. It's a social activity that shows solidarity, that boosts your, you know, your sense of agency and empowerment, and those are great for our happiness.
0: And so, is, is that uh, is that one of the things that you recommend? Then I, I'm wondering how, like, what it looks like in your lab. Is your lab? Uh, extraordinarily sustainable in a way that other labs might not be. I, I, were I to walk in there, are, are things done differently? Does it look differently than uh, than others might?
1: Yeah. I mean, we have a very low environmental footprint in the lab. We produce zero waste. There's no waste in my lab. We A lot of uh, my students are vegans or vegetarians. Uh, I eat very little meat myself. I've declined lots of invitations to fly to give talks. And that's huge. That's that's the kind of, you know, faculty air travel is a, a huge factor in campus emissions. It's greater than building uh, emissions, like how much emissions uh, that buildings have. So we, we try to live a low like carbon lifestyle and our research is gearing toward that and telling society and the world how to do it. And I think it's infectious so this is the this is the ripple effect that that you mentioned early on. If I do it, then other people see it. I do it, it sends a social signal to other people, then they 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 may follow along. I think some research in the past suggests that, you know, to get to the tipping point, you need a quarter, 25% of the, the population to change first. I mean, it doesn't mean that we really, really just 25% is a is a, I think it's an arbitrary number. It may not be 25%. But we need a committed minority to change it's before the majority get on board. But we we need somebody to start. And I think I, at least at UBC in Vancouver, that's what I'm seeing is more and more people are, you know, biking, eating plant-based diets. You know, we already, our energy is already uh, green. We are 95% renewable uh, in the province. Now, I think single-use plastic bags are illegal you can't provide that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think single-use plastic uh, cups are are being phased out too. So, yeah. So I think it's it's changing. It's just not changing as fast as I would like.
0: <laughs> and I think that's that is something an issue for all of us, right? That this change does happen so slowly when it seems like the crisis has been looming for some time, and now it's already here because the pace of change has been so slow leading up to it. Now we are seeing the effects of climate change around the world. And we're now in a Mm -hmm. climate crisis that's only going to get worse. And all we can do now is sort of mitigate it from from this point on. But I think it's I think there is some hopefulness in the idea that, you know, your lab, for example, a lab at a university can be carbon neutral, can be zero emissions, because very often right, you, you get into these discussions with people and like. You, you mentioned taking airplanes to travel to places to give a talk and that sort of thing. And mm. we can do that on Zoom now a lot. You know, you and I are speaking on Zoom from different ends of uh, Canada right now. Uh, we don't need to take a plane to actually travel to, to, to do that. But a lot of people do need to take planes to travel to major international conferences to hammer out some policy, and then they're accused of being hypocrites and... You know, you take that down the line and and the more people complain about this, right? You hear it where David Suzuki makes a lot of money. Therefore, I don't believe in climate change or Al Gore has a plane. Therefore, I don't believe in climate change or what have you. Right. And the only person then that can truly be credible is somebody who lives in a log cabin in the woods and, you know, lives off bugs and and vegetation around them. And no one's listening to that guy. Right. Right he's mm. off the grid and, and he's not giving a TED talk. So I think that, you know, the example of your lab is actually something fairly hopeful that it's possible to exist in society, to, you know, contribute in, in many different ways while also uh, maintaining the zero footprint.
1: I don't think we're net zero. <laughs> I don't think we're zero emissions. That's really hard to to do. I actually did a calculation of the departmental emissions uh, just a couple months ago, where I I try to quantify how much greenhouse gas emissions does the department have in a year, because of our research, teaching, service, and all of that, all everything we do on campus, and it turns out that the psychology department uh, has about 700 tons of emissions every year. Wow, uh, that's a, that's a lot. But we are a huge department, so we teach. 20,000 undergrads every year. Right. We have 200 graduate students. You know, we have 60 staff. We have, we have 30 staff and we have 60 faculty members. So it's a huge, It's I think the largest department at UBC. And we have 700 tons of carbon emissions. And most of that comes from travel, like commuting. It's right. undergrads tr- tr- commuting to and from campus to take classes. Now, I don't blame the undergrads. It's 20,000 of them. 20,000 of them for 700 Tons, I think it's not that bad but but how do we how do we go to Net zero right so we we have a climate action committee in the department which I'm part of how do we make commuting easier or, or less carbon intensive I mean I wish we can have uh Skytrain that will go right. all the way to sea that just that still I don't understand why we don't have Skytrain EBC UBC. And housing, you know, we, we, we need to build more affordable housing, affordable housing on campus so more students can just stay on campus instead of travel back and forth every day. And then, you know, after commute, I think the next one is flights. So faculty, most of that is faculty flying too much. <laughs> so right. I, I, now I'm like, if somebody, I've, I've just declined an invitation to, to present on climate change. I said, I cannot in my good conscience fly and give a talk on climate change. If you have a remote option, let me know, but I'm not coming in person. Right. So so there's a lot we can do as a department. I think the will is there. People want to change. It's just right now we just need the university support and more, you know, literally we need water support to give us the resources to do what we want to do.
0: <laughs> right. And I, I think it comes down to that a lot. Interesting though, you mentioned right, affordable housing. And I think that's something that, You know, that's something I've cared about a lot Uh, here in Ottawa and around Canada. There's just not enough affordable housing. People are getting priced out of housing and having to move further and further away. There's a significant environmental impact as a result. And the last time you and I spoke, it was because you had completed a study on people experiencing homelessness and you give them money and they're less homeless. It strikes me that there are a lot of these solutions that can exist that do take a certain amount Uh, Quite a large amount of money up front, but that save money in the long run and have significant environmental impacts as well. And this inequality of income between the people who have a lot and the people who don't is really exacerbated by this and exacerbates the problem itself, right? There seems to be a a connection between all of this. And I wonder if yeah. that's something that you guys, I, I presume you're looking at that quite often in, in your lab, since I've already spoken to you on that specific subject, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, the income inequality is troubling. Um, the, richest, the rich are getting richer, the poor is getting poorer. Um, and it's 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 an investment. It's a barrier to investment. I don't understand why we are hesitant to invest in our own people. That, that again, is a human bias, like uh, it's 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 literally, you know, tempo discounting. We, we don't want to make the investment now for a future, a larger future gain. We would rather not spend anything. <laughs> I, 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 right, I not spending sure, anything,
0: yeah. right? Not spending anything now does defer the costs. And I think what it comes down to is it again, it's a messaging thing. It's much easier <sighs> to say, oh, we're not going to spend money now because that's your money, taxpayer money. But what you're not saying is I'm going to be spending a lot more taxpayer money down the road to deal with the problems that have arisen. Oh,
1: they rather they did. De- so we love to delay costs. Humans love to delay costs to the future and get immediate gains. Now, they don't like to postpone immediate gains, but they love. I mean, they love post- to postpone costs. And by humans, I mean, I'm including in there in there as well. But it's just that just boggles me. Governments work this way. A lot of people, the public, work this way. That's why we don't invest enough to prevent future problems.
0: the The episode, a podcast episode previous to this, I was talking to a Dr. Catherine Arbuthnot. Thing she wanted to get across was this idea of trust that we, as people, tend to believe that other people are less trustworthy than in fact they actually are. That they are more interested in uh, a selfish immediate gratification than they are in the collective good of all of us and that turns out really not to be true uh the individual is not like that most of us are are willing to make very small sacrifices for very small gains for the whole community and large sacrifices for large gains right mm-hmm. but writ large we're not really looking at it in that way right and nope. we presume that others have this sort of uh, self-centered, self-aggrandizing, self-involved uh, view of the world that well, we, of course, don't, but others do. And uh, and that not being the case, I, and I'm trying to figure out how do we then make the case? Other people want to do the same thing you do.
1: So we did that study. I mean, we did that study with the cash transfer experiment where we you know, said if you invest this cash transfer in people experiencing homelessness, it actually, you know, it saves society money. It saves taxpayers money that down, down the road. And that, that messaging increased people's support. So we need, that, we need to make that cost savings more transparent. Because all people can think about right now is the cost. Wow, that's a billion dollar investment or whatever. How, how many billions to build the SkyTrain at UBC? That's a huge chunk of money. I cost. And the province can't justify it well enough. Whereas if they say, if we build the sky train, yeah, that's a lot, that's gonna put us in debt you know, for now. But we're saving on transportation, we're saving on all the kind of climate-related disasters that's gonna happen down the road. I think that 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 like the return of the investment, that ROI piece is missing. All we talk about is how much, how expensive it is to do what we want to do. But we don't talk about the ROI. I think that that cost benefit analysis needs to be done. And and the public needs to know what the ROI is.
0: Right. It needs to be communicated more effectively. Right. Because, yeah. and you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about if I do individual things, I eat less meat, I, uh, you know have a more vegetable based diet and maybe my friend sees me and they are influenced to do the same and they'll move in that direction a little bit. And we also sort of do that globally, right? Uh, Countries who are willing to put in these investments and, and, and make them the pushback tends to be, well, okay, it's great that Canada wants to do this, but who cares when globally the United States isn't doing that and China's not doing that and India's not doing that and they have way more influence on what happens with climate change than we do, so why would we spend any money doing it? We may as well just get on board with uh, you know all of the fossil fuels and, and continue drilling for oil and all this kind of thing. And yeah, I guess the... The argument to that is, until we do it, we can't suggest to other countries that they do the same, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think we need an early adopter. We need yeah. to, 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 to be the model for others to follow. I think that's, that's also the, the, the yeah, it takes gut. <laughs> <laughs> it takes courage, right, to be that first person, the first organization that's doing that. Because we all, uh, I also, I don't like that we need presidents. Oh, give me a president. Like we need to see something like this has happened before. So it works. And that's all about risk aversion. We need to take more risks. So that's my frustration.
0: And when we spoke last time, I mean, that was one of the things we spoke about, right? Uh, Guaranteed minimum income, for example, Uh, if you're making cash transfers uh, to people experiencing homelessness, all of the benefits that come from that are quite obvious. If we did a a guaranteed minimum income, looks like it's going to work for, but give me a study, show me something. And all of these studies are only partially done and they're not in tight, right? (laughs) It becomes difficult. Okay. We have a few minutes left. I'm hoping that you can finish this off by just giving us a few examples. Uh, You gave the example of biking to the grocery store. Uh, What are some of the things where we can connect happiness and action that helps the climate in the long run?
1: Changing our diet: eat more plants, eat less meat. Uh, that's better for our physical health and mental health, mental well-being, um, and better for the for the for the climate. How uh, we travel: so biking is one, carpooling is another. Taking public transit is another action. Fly less. By that I mean either just video conference or flight bundle. So to so bundle your trips, so you only do one giant trip, but instead of you know instead of flying multiple times uh let's say to the east coast and then i think waste reduction is another one like where I need we need to we should function your our fridge and how you can function your fridge uh please check out my ted talk i describe yeah. how you can function your fridge and lastly uh this is this is what i want to go back to system change we need to call upon governments and businesses and, and industries to change their policies and, and practices and that we can do readily again in ways that also boost our happiness join friends join organizations volunteer basically this is looking at social connection of these climate actions so yeah i would i would say you know please get creative and and come up with you know happy climate actions that will work for you
0: I'm going to put a link to your TED talk in the show notes of this episode because I do want people to hear about feng shuiing their fridge. Uh- <laughs> I realized when I watched it that I've been doing that a little bit myself over the years and not because, generally speaking, I never waste any food. There's no food that goes to waste. I know I know it's in there and I'm the only one who cooks, so I'm the okay. one who's going in there and, and making sure that we use up the rest of that celery and that sort of thing. But I also have a kid who won't look past the very first like thing <laughs> that they see on the first shelf, on the first row, so I have to very conscientiously make sure that this is the thing that I want you to eat next. We have some leftover burritos. They're right at the front of the fridge. Now that's what you can have for a snack in the middle of the night. That's, you know, so I've been very careful about that at least. Uh,
1: (laughs) That's great. Thank you, Eric.
0: <laughs> and maybe I'm going to put a, a photo of a sea turtle uh, stuck in some, yeah. uh, you know, plastic rings on my recycling bins to convince uh, my daughter to uh, separate <laughs> the recycling in the proper way and not just throw it all in one bin. That that's the next step, perhaps. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, and I. Really appreciate the work that you're doing. We'll put some links to it uh, in the show notes here. And I hope people get a little bit inspired. They can get happy and uh, help to save the climate at the same time. So let's all do that. I'm together. looking forward to Jay-Z's okay, talk you. in June you, at the CPA convention in Ottawa, where we'll learn even more about happiness and sustainability. Yeah, see you in, June. in the meantime, right, check the show notes Bye. for a link to her TED Bye. talk, a story about putting animal images on recycling bins at UBC and more. Thanks to Jay-Z for joining me once again on Mindful, and to you at home for tuning in this Psychology Month and listening, streaming, downloading, and reviewing our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Mindful is written, hosted, and published by me, Eric Bullman. Our editor and producer is Jamie Montgomery, and our theme song is Avenues by David Taylor.